Green Sense Show is sponsored by CEA Technology, providing a sustainable modular indoor growing system. Visit CEATECHN.com to learn more. I'm Robert Colangelo, and this is Green Sense, where we bring you eco innovations that are changing your world. This week, we have a Renaissance woman who has combined many talents to promote critical science-based thinking in business, the arts, and politics. How refreshing. She's a scientist with a PhD in chemistry from Northwestern University, a sustainability professional that serves as a senior program manager at Resource Conservation Consultancy, a community activist that manages one of the largest energy efficiency programs in Illinois, is a member of the Chicago Improv Community. We really want to talk about that. And she's running for older person for Chicago's 46th Ward. It's my pleasure to welcome Marianne Lulond to the Green Sense Show. Marianne, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Wow, what a powerhouse. And thanks for letting me tell your story. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, let's start at the beginning. You grew up in a small town in Maryland. Uh, how did that shape your values and concerns about sustainability, the environment, and science? I grew up in the Maryland Agricultural Reserve, uh, which was uh, some land that was set aside for a period of 50 years that um, had a land use restriction for agriculture. So actually very close to Washington, D.C., about a 45-minute drive um, but it gets rural very quickly. So the town I grew up in has a population of around 5,000 people. And we were served by a system of nine wells for the community, for our water source. And we often experienced water restrictions um, under drought conditions that nearby areas didn't have because of the way that we sourced our water from the ground. Um, so very early on in life, I um, was dealing with resource conservation issues, even though we were in a fairly well-developed area and so close to a major city. Uh, at what age was this? I lived there um, from when I was five years old to 18. And who shaped your values? Was it your parents? Was it the community? Was it all of the above? It really was all of the above. Um, I think... Uh, Living in that area and in the Chesapeake Bay watershed, uh, water quality was a really high priority. We were taught in public school that um, water runoff would go directly into the bay and impact bay ecosystems. Very similar to what we experience here in Chicago, um, trying to protect our primary water source, Lake Michigan. Um, and that was, uh, like I said, taught in public schools and really instilled um, throughout my whole childhood. And my parents were really respectful of the water restrictions. We learned to do different things and have these uh, different tactics when we were under restriction periods. So uh, we learned to stop our clothes washer at um, before it would drain out and use the gray water to water our vegetable gardens since we weren't allowed to turn hoses on into our yards. We had, had uh, it's kind of a, a suburban type of um, format within the rural community where we had uh, mostly single family homes with uh, three to five acre lots. So that conditioned you at a young age to really think that way. And then you <laughs> went on and you earned a PhD in chemistry from Northwestern University and you did research on carbon sequestration and uh, talk about your findings and your research and why that work was so important. 
Yeah, so it's a really interesting subfield of chemistry. Um, it was making porous materials called metal organic frameworks. So you can think of these as a rigid sponge. If you imagine um, a pair of dice uh, together, but you can only have the edges and corners and that the center you could use to fill with gas molecules. That's what these types of materials are used for. And they had, uh, depending on what types of molecules you use to build the structures, they can have a high affinity for carbon dioxide and were being studied at the time as filtration materials for the flue gas coming from coal-fired power plants. Um, and another application that I studied was the use of these materials to store hydrogen for hydrogen-powered vehicles. Um, it was a really exciting area of research. I will say it doesn't, you know, it doesn't justify the continued use of uh, coal-fired uh, power plants for electricity. Um, but I really appreciated learning uh, the chemistry at the basic level and also being able to see potential applications that materials I was making in the laboratory could have in the real world. Yeah, science is a lot of fun, but when you could see it applied and doing great things, it's even more rewarding. <laughs> so, so did you ever decide to take a career path and do more of that scientific research or get involved with commercialization of technology? No, I, the materials um, from my graduate research lab are commercialized uh, now. Um, there's a company based out of Skokie called NUMAT, N-U-M-A-T, um, that is commercializing metal organic frameworks for real world applications, for gas storage specifically. Um, but for me, uh, I um, was really swayed into for uh, wanting, I wanted to leave the laboratory. So I, I enjoyed the basic research, but I found that um, what really got me excited was being able to serve almost as a translator of science to the layperson, And that has fueled the rest of my career. Um, yeah, well, we're going to get into that because I can <laughs> see you're a very good communicator. You worked in the U.S. Senate and you covered uh, energy and the environment with Ohio Senator Sherwood Brown. Uh, how did working in the Senate awaken your awareness for having science-minded professionals in all levels of government? That was a really pivotal uh, moment in my career, for sure. So when I, right when I finished my PhD, I knew that um, continuing academia just wasn't a good fit for me. It was a great fit for some of my colleagues, and I have a lot of respect for them. Um, but I wanted to be interacting outside of the academic community and with people who were non-scientists. Um, and I pursued a lot of different um, fellowships and I pursued, you know, management consulting as an option um, for moving my career forward, which a lot of PhD students look into now because of the problem solving and pragmatic aspect of getting a STEM PhD. Um, but I was really fortunate to be selected for a fellowship in Washington serving as a AAAS fellow. And that's the American Association for Advancement of Science. And every year, they actually take about 30 PhDs of different uh, disciplines and bring them to Capitol Hill, and you serve a one-year term in either the House of Representatives or the U.S. Senate. You can work with any member. Um, it's a little bit of a mutual selection process, so any member that will have you in their office that you're interested in working for um, at either the House or Senate level. Um, and uh, your job is to serve as um, an objective translator of science. So I worked with physicists, there are veterinarians, um, there was a mining engineer. So we were coming from all different 
disciplines. And um, most of us were also sponsored by a scientific society. So I was co-sponsored by the American Chemical Society when I was there. I had very little interaction with the scientific society um, at the time, but they are uh, funding this program, both AAAS and different scientific societies. Um, so I did my undergraduate education at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. So I was familiar with Senator Brown from being a former Ohio resident. Um, and Ohio is a really interesting place with a lot of farming, a lot of manufacturing, a very mixed political landscape. Um, so and, and I was really drawn to Sherrod's values. So it was a, an immediate great fit for me to be working in his personal office. Um, focused on energy and environment. And Ohio has always been at the forefront of a lot of environmental issues. I don't know if you remember when Lake Erie was on fire and uh, significant- <laughs> Cuyahoga River, yeah. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and there's many small towns that are very manufacturing based. Uh, I, I dealt with a lot of brownfield redevelopment in my past and many of those Ohio communities were devastated by the closing factories and the shrinking cities issue. So yeah, that, that was, uh, uh, that, that's a place that, uh, there's a, there's a lot of, uh, incubation of these ideas. I think what you're doing is fascinating. I never heard of it, uh, uh the program before, mm -hmm. uh, but you think now our it's, society it's comforting, right. To know that scientists have your back a little bit in DC. <laughs> it is because we're yeah. living in such a technical world. Remember when uh, Mark Zuckerberg uh, testified in Congress and the mm -hmm. uh, con congressman didn't know what he was talking about. They were asking elementary questions that didn't make sense. And as our sci our world gets more technical, our policies seem to be way behind that. So having someone like you or, or a group of people up there is important. Do you find it effective? Is it working? It it does work if uh, the host office is receptive, and mine definitely was. They were really receptive to hearing feedback, and but but there's a little bit of self selection, right? There's so many different offices and committees on the hill, um, and really um, only about thirty to forty five scientists who show up every year for this program. So you're spread out. Um, and because it's a mutual selection process, really the host office has, has to want to um, have that source of scientific uh, information and guidance in their office. And if they want it, then they're usually really receptive. And in politics, fact-based uh, critical thinking doesn't always drive the final uh, <laughs> decision-making process. I, in, no, in, politi in uh, Washington politics and in Chicago politics, I think <laughs> right. um, voters and um, a lot of people even choose with their their heart and not with their head. And that's a really human thing to do. Um, and um, it makes sense. So uh, it's it can be a challenge to people who are a little bit more cerebral to come around um, and try to make this communication with people who make decisions differently from the way that they do. Um, and you have to think about different ways to motivate people who um, just don't uh, think in the same way and are motivated by by different issues. Um, and that's why it's great to have you on the show because you're quite <laughs> unique. So let's talk a little bit about the uh, program that you're managing in Illinois. Uh, uh, it's the largest prescriptive energy efficiency program in Northern Illinois market. Uh, tell us a little bit about what prescriptive energy efficiency is and uh, about that program and its benefits. 
Sure. So I work for a company, a consulting firm called Resource Innovations, and we're one of many energy efficiency consultancies in Northern Illinois in, in the um, utility market that serves uh, Northern Illinois. And we also serve in other parts of the United States. Um, but I've worked primarily in two different programs with, within my time there. And one was um, as a strategic energy management coach. Um, and in that role, I visited in uh, manufacturing facilities directly a lot in the greater Chicago area. Um, one of the things that I learned in this role was how much processed food we make in the greater Chicago area. Um, there are so many food facilities and a lot of uh, opportunities to save electricity in industrial refrigeration. Um, so I would go into the factories and coach the facilities managers and operating engineers on how to revise processes um, to use less electricity, which was really rewarding. It's getting to work with um, all sorts of different people and, and really cool to see the insides of different factories in the area. So some of the thing, um, types of factories I was able to go into, one made um, for example, a continuous glucose monitor for diabetes. There were some medical device factories. There were chemical factories. There's chemical factories on the south side of Chicago that where um, sulfuric acid is concentrated. And like I said, a lot of food facilities, I served two facilities that make uh, very popular brands of frozen pizzas um, and a popular um, ice cream novelty, which is a really fun factory to visit. Um, and then, uh, I moved on in more recent years and was a program manager for a prescriptive energy efficiency program. And the difference between strategic energy management and a prescriptive program is that in strategic energy management, you're looking for no and low cost operations and maintenance solutions. So you're really looking at the processes and you're not asking the facilities to make any investments. In a prescriptive program, you're looking to make capital investment upgrades. So that can be switching to LED lighting and then getting a financial incentive to do so from the utility company. It can be upgrading your um, HVAC equipment and getting an incentive to do so again. And uh, prescriptive programs look at systems that are common, like HVAC, like lighting, um, sometimes uh, more obscure things like um, plastic injection molding, where you would see it in different types of industries. but um, across the board, uh, very similar equipment um, and get these um, incentives and uh, financial incentives for upgrading your equipment where you're, you're not having to invest the same cost that you would um, if the program didn't exist. And we actually pay a line item on our electric bill to fund these programs. You can see um, we, all, we all pay ComEd in Northern Illinois and there's a line item that says energy efficiency programs on your electric bill and that goes to fund these programs. I happen to work in the industrial side, but the same programs exist on the residential side and folks are able to take advantage of them. It's amazing. The Chicago market's one of the largest industrial markets in the country. We have over a billion square feet under roof. And I think we're one of the largest uh, cold storage markets. So refrigeration's yes. a, a critical issue here. And it's amazing how many large cold storage facilities there are from perishable foods to you know, other, other types of products. And we've covered the refrigeration issue on the show with new advances in there to, to bring about sustainable cooling. So that that's uh, quite interesting. Well, 
I want to fact check this because I, I can't believe it's true. But is it correct that if you're elected to the, to be an older person, you'd be the first PhD scientist ever on the Chicago City Council? I would, yes. Ever? <laughs> yes. That doesn't uh, say much for older people, <laughs> does it? And for the city council. <laughs> well, it's, uh, you know, a lot of folks really have served very long terms in city council. So we haven't seen the turnover that we're seeing in this election in um, years prior. But it's exciting that in this election, we'll get at least uh, 14 new um, older people based on retirements of incumbents and then uh, perhaps more if um any incumbents are upset by their challengers. So why do you think there's not more scientists represented in the Chicago City Council? I think of a few things. One is that um, many scientists struggle with running for office, and there are groups who uh, exist now to specifically help scientists do this. So one is um, that I've worked very closely with uh, both in my 2019 election and now as 314 Action their mission is to elect scientists at the federal, state, and local levels. Um, and they have funding assistance, but they also do training programs. Because scientists are, are used to thinking with their heads and not their hearts, it can be really difficult to make that adjustment and have that translation capability where you can convince a voter why it's important um, and, and what's meaningful about having a scientist in the government. And I think some of the advantages are and, and what I observed when I was in the Senate were that scientists are very pragmatic um, and they're very detail-oriented. Uh, it was used to screen um, laws for loopholes that lobbyists suggested when I was working in the Senate. And that can be really important when you have special interests at every level of government that are looking for a specific goal and you want to protect your um, constituents. Um, and uh, they really um, can provide that objective source of facts. But on the flip side, that takes away a lot of their persuasion ability because people really make emotionally fueled choices. So you have to be not only objective, but also inspirational. So I think scientists have struggled to be successful at running for office, but the value um, once they get there can be um, really powerful. Some say that scientists are a, a inch wide and a mile deep and politicians <laughs> are a mile wide and an inch deep. So they're, they're two different skill sets. As you said, scientists uh, have to be logical. They have to be thorough. They have to be consistent. And there, there's a whole scientific practice that you have to follow in, in, in politics. It's, it's really I don't know that you have a lot of time to do analysis. So I, I'm so happy to hear that there's people like you and there's programs like that because our world's getting more and more technical and it needs to be much more methodical in that, that uh, legislative and political process. So that that's that's fantastic. Well, I save what I think is the best part of your background for last, and that's improv comedy. I mean, wow, look at this combination. You're, you're a scientist. You, you know about public policy and you're an improvisationist. I think that's awesome. So tell us how you got into improv and how that's helped uh, train you as a scientist to be a better communicator. Yeah, I, I never did any um, theater growing up in high school, college, um, did not, that was not my extracurricular of choice. I was uh, an athlete, I was a college swimmer. 
but when I got to grad school, um, I realized that the people that I was interacting with day to day and with the really long hours we were putting in in the laboratory, um, I wasn't getting to have social interactions except with my coworkers. Um, and while they were great, I really wanted to broaden my social network to meet more people in Chicago and meet people who were doing different things during the day than I was and take a, give my brain a little bit of a break from thinking about chemistry all the time. Um, so uh, on a whim and really to make friends, um, I decided to take an introductory class at Second City. I don't think uh, you have any problem making friends. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, I, I really enjoyed it. I was surprised to enjoy it. I thought I would take a class or two, get a group of friends that were outside of grad school and just uh, kind of be done with it. But I loved it so much that I kept doing it. And now I've been doing it for um, 11 years. This is my 11th year. And I've... Uh, taken classes at a variety of different theaters around Chicago, um, uh, IO, The Annoyance, um, CIC, different uh, diff training programs, had the fortunate opportunity to perform with a few teams um, that lasted a long time, that lasted four or five years. Uh, and when I was actually serving in the Senate um, and I moved to DC, I performed with Washington Improv Theater um, while I was there. So I was still getting my uh, improv fix in performing there um, before I moved back to Chicago when my time in the Senate was over. Um, well, there, and there must have been a lot of material you generated in uh, Washington. <laughs> so share something with us about politics, science and improv if you if you can. Well, I think um, the the skill set that improv gave me was being able to think fast on my feet and then also, um, in improv, you have to respond uh, immediately. It, it forces you to be in the in the moment. And I think as scientists, our brains tend to churn and wander and go off in different directions. And it sometimes leads you to lose focus on the person you're talking to or the situation that you're in. Um, improv forces you absolutely to pay 100% attention to your scene partners, to be in the moment, to live in a world that you're building with your teammates um, at the same time. And that skill set really helped me a lot to um, interact with politicians. So I think it was part of my history that prepared me for, um, for running for office and for working in the government. I think it um, provides a lot of soft skills uh, that are difficult for people who are more um, more in their left brain uh, to pick up on. So it's definitely helped me flex that muscle and, and I really enjoy it. I enjoy the, the break that it gives me from uh, thinking about uh, my day job and um, public policy. Um, so yeah, it's for me performing, I, I definitely um, do it for myself. Uh, and uh, it's, it's less about putting on a show for other people and more about the, the benefit of the exercise. Well, I think there is a comedian, Aaron Freeman, that used to do Council Wars that uh, was quite uh, humorous. <laughs> did you ever get a chance to see that? Or... <laughs> I, I did not, no. But uh, that, that was a quite good satire on Chicago politics. Uh, anything funny you'd like to share? <laughs> no, I'm afraid it doesn't work that way. Okay. Um, yeah, the, I think scripted comedy is great. Um, that uh, I have a lot of friends who write sketches and uh, do political satire in comedy. For me, um, it's it's definitely about 
the the true improv aspect. So coming up, uh, coming on stage with with no prior preparation, and then working with your your team to build something. So I very rarely participate in uh, sketch comedy and uh, pre written material. I uh, uh, what I really enjoy is the um, the improvised aspect of it. So what happens when politics uh, meets science? Hmm. I, it's really a, a great opportunity um, to accomplish things. And it's uh, at all levels, you know, science-based causes are becoming increasingly important. We just had, you know, we've gone through a global pandemic now where public health was at the forefront. We're should be constantly thinking about climate change. Um, and I think people take for granted how impactful you can be at the local level. Um, but aldermen control, um, you know, with prerogative, they control the built environment in the city of Chicago. And when we're thinking about potential infrastructure improvements, um, increased rainfall, uh, large weather events like the derecho we had two years ago. Um, this is an opportunity for city council to make a uh, a big difference in um, thinking about how the infrastructure can handle weather events like that moving forward. We're going to have a major infrastructure revision as we transition to electric vehicles and are adding charging stations. It's going to change the grid in the area. Um, and all of that is uh, controlled at the local level of government. So there's what a, do you a like, lot that can be done. What do you like most about running for older one, older person? <laughs> um, interacting with voters is definitely my favorite thing. I, um, at the end of the day, I, I love the ward that I'm in. Um, and that is, was really fueling my decision to run. Um, the 46th ward is uptown in Lakeview. And um, I, I, the diversity of voters in the area, um, diversity of backgrounds, uh, and the passion um, that voters have for specific local causes is um, just really inspiring. So my, my absolute favorite part of running for office is knocking on doors and talking to voters. That's wonderful. What's the least uh, favorable? <laughs> um, asking uh, for financial donations yeah. <laughs> is favorable for me and for a number of other uh, progressive yeah. Democrats. Um, it, it can be difficult and uh um, yeah, it, it could, with, with some campaign finance reform, it could be uh, avoided and really even the playing field. Well, I think uh, that that goes independent of a, being a scientist. I think no nobody likes uh, raising money for these campaigns and also <laughs> just spending a lot of time in Canada. They have such a short campaigning season with so little money involved. In I, I wish things would change down here. But in, uh, it's been a real pleasure to speak with you. In closing, is there anything else you'd like to add? Oh, thank you so much for having me. Um, I really appreciate it. And uh, I, yeah, I think there, there are just so many benefits to having um, scientists in the government, you know, whether or not they're trained at the PhD level or they're just coming from a, a science-based career. Um, I think they have a lot of power to make a difference. Well, we need more fact-based uh, critical thinkers in all professions, especially government. So good luck with your race for older person. Thank you for being on Green Sense Show. Thank you so much. That's Marianne Lulon, scientist, activist, improvisationist, and candidate for Chicago's 46th Ward, showing how one individual can make the world a better place. Green Sense Show is sponsored by CEA Technology. Visit CEATECHN.com to learn more about our indoor growing technology. 
I'm Robert Colangelo. Thank you for listening and check out the Green Sense Minute every Thursday and Saturday on 105.9 FM WBBM Chicago and visit the GreenSenseShow.com website to learn more about sponsorship. GreenSense Show is sponsored by CEA Technology, providing a sustainable modular indoor growing system. Visit CEATECHN.com to learn more.